The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here reminding you that ads are not an inevitability. There is more than one way for you to help fund Lawfare. One way is for you to listen to the ads that we put on this podcast. Another way is for you to go to patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. Support us directly and get an ad-free version of this podcast. You also get access to other cool stuff like our regular weekly Lawfare Live events. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. You can always move it up a level of generalization that would make it easier. So you could look at all of the account level enforcements and bucket those types of data under one thing. I think we should be very clear in expecting that (laughs) the data is not going to be uniform. It isn't even going to be uniform and structured the same way between products in a single social media platform. And this is a problem. The data is not as structured and consistent as many might assume. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 8th, 2021. Alicia Wanless is the director of the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and she has a beef with the current debate over influence operations. Put simply, it's that we don't really know what works in countering them, and the studies of the subject all seem to be case studies using different methodologies and examining different things. She joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk through how we might improve our knowledge base on this subject, what kind of information we would need to study in a serious way, whether influence operations work and what works to counter them. We talked about transparency reporting requirements for the big tech companies, We talked about data sharing between companies and scholars. We talked about what a massive effort at research in this space would look like. And we talked about whether it has any possibility of coming to be. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 8th, Alicia Wanless on what's wrong with the discussion of influence operations. So, Alicia... You have concerns about the state of the public dialogue and debate over 
influence operations. Why? Well, my concerns around the public debate around influence operations as it currently stands is that we don't actually know a whole lot about their effects, especially long-term effects and the changes that social media has caused. So there's very little research in terms of understanding impacts with relation to social media, especially longer term. And then the second thing is we know even less about the efficacy as well as the unintended consequences of the interventions that are made to counter influence operations. So, you know, it feels like every other day there's a new report about influence operations, often a new one with some snazzy name. And it seems like an odd omission to not have some of that background impact material that you're describing. How did this situation develop? Well, I think that the field is generally still emerging. Um, You do have an older field of, uh, let's say, propaganda researchers, so political communication researchers who have been looking at this over a longer term, but they didn't necessarily have the technical skill set to go and do more like social media analysis, but beyond that, experimental designs to be able to understand the impacts on audiences. There's a gap in terms of being able to do that research, which can be complex. The second problem is that there's very little meta studies happening in this space. So people turn out case studies, which can be quite easy to do. Evidence of activity is easy to dig up. It's easy to put a report out and you will probably get media capture for it because it is a topic that is hot right now. But nobody really goes back and tries to piece together that body of literature over time, which is one of the things that our program has attempted to do to provide a little bit a little bit deeper insight into the field at large. So break that down for us. What does what does looking at the field at large show you that the individual operation case studies don't show you? Like what's the what's the intellectual value that gets added when you do that? Well, one that really helps us identify the big gaps that are remaining. So we we did this across a number of different topics. We started by looking at the actual initiatives that were researching and countering influence operations and trying to make sense of who's operating in the field. At that point, which was last year, we found 460 worldwide. The vast majority tend to be more on the fact-checking and policy side of the shop. Then we went and we polled the community. We interviewed them to try to understand what the challenges were, um, how they were describing this space, because again, there's quite a lot of different definitions flying around for similar things. And so there's very little consistency even in how we talk about the topic. We dug into what platforms have been doing. So we aggregated and uh, encoded all of the platform policies that platforms had published that could tackle aspects of influence operations. We also looked at the interventions they made, but then we went one step further and those reports are about to come out. Uh, Princeton University's Empirical Study of Conflicts did these ones for us. And they look at the body of academic literature that assessed the impact or the effects of influence operations, as well as the body of literature that assesses the efficacy of of countermeasures. And the problems there are that while there's been an increase in interventions and regulations that have been put out, especially in the face of COVID, there's very little analysis as to whether those interventions really work or not. So help me with that, because that's actually a surprising statement. Everybody's demanding that the social media platforms do more. And 
everybody's saying words like, we need regulation, but you're saying we don't really know if the interventions do anything. So when people say we want more or we want regulation, are they actually demanding something more of something that may be ineffective? It's possible. It's quite possible. So on one hand, in terms of the effects of influence operations, most research that has been done, at least in the academic literature to date, has focused on traditional mass media. And there has been some evidence that in particular domestic campaigns may cause people to take action in some way. But then there's very little analysis, especially longer term, of the effects of influence operations being used with social media. Um, So there's a big gap there. So we don't even necessarily have a good understanding, empirically anyway, of what the priority areas would be to intervene. Then the second part of this problem is the actual interventions that are that are made. So, yes, the companies have actually increased their policies and their interventions over time, particularly in last year. Again, it seems to correspond with the pandemic. However, they disclose next to nothing publicly as to whether they've been measuring those interventions for efficacy. And if they are measuring them, they certainly aren't disclosing that. So we don't know whether it works from the platform perspective. In the academic literature, again, the research more heavily focused on on fact-checking initiatives. And when they did look at social media, interventions based on social media, the problem there was that they tend to be experimental designs that are more about surveying the, the targets, the subjects after they've been exposed to something. So they're not really done in the wild, so to speak, replicating what would actually be happening if they were engaging. Now, there's more to this that is also kind of challenging. As you'd mentioned, um, with regards to calls for like more data sharing, uh, increased regulation on social media companies, these are all really common proposals that are made. We also looked at the 85 proposals that were made by 51 think tanks around the world on what they think should happen. And they all made claims like this. But one of the biggest problems is that the majority of those proposals often do not offer detailed roadmaps for implementation. So there's a lot of pressure, yes, on social media companies to do something about it, as well as governments. But nobody really seems to be articulating how those proposals would work out in practice. And this is problematic because without further detail, we're essentially leaving it to the companies to figure out how to implement and do these interventions. And as I think we've already seen in many cases, that isn't really sufficient. And perhaps companies shouldn't be dictating how we govern the information environment, much less how they in terms facilitate, I don't know, access to data for researchers, for example. All right. So I want to try to break this down. What you're saying in a nutshell is that we don't really know whether influence operations work and to what extent they work. We don't really know whether countermeasures work. And we don't really know whether the things that we're calling on social media companies to do in response in implementing these these and other countermeasures or regulation of those social media companies work either. Is that fair? I think, I mean, that's very, very black and white. You know, there are some instances like mass media has shown that it can have an effect. Now, when it comes to social media, that's a question. Fact checking has had an effect, but that's not necessarily, that's not a, a social media intervention per se. And we don't know whether 
you know, users are getting that information and what happens after that. But yes, otherwise, I am saying that right now what we're dealing with is a problem that is very much like medicine was in the Middle Ages. We had once thought that somebody gives you an evil eye and that makes you sick. Right now, we see messaging that may be problematic and we assume that it is the cause of everything that happens afterwards. So there's a lot of um, mistaking correlation with causation. So if you wanted to to stick with your medical analogy, so if you wanted to go through the process that medicine started going through in the 19th century of actually you know, scientificizing what has previously been an amalgamation of prejudices and trial and error and assumptions. What would it look like to develop a research agenda on the effectiveness of influence operations and their countermeasures in the social media space? For one, I think we'd have to start looking at this problem systemically. Um, right now, we look at it based on, on on case studies of evidence of activity. So what that means is we're looking at tactics, we're looking at actors, we're looking at the things they say in isolation from a wider system. The problem with that is is that the information environment is extremely complex, and so you know you may have a politician who comes out with influence operations and uses disinformation and has a bunch of supporters who appear to be grassroots uh, organizations or community-based organizations. They undertake an influence operation. This makes for a really neat and tidy case study, but that doesn't necessarily take into account how media may be taking up and amplifying their messaging, how other regular unsuspecting people take it up and become part of a more participatory propaganda movement that becomes more credible for people. We also don't look at that case study all the way through to, again, the intended or how it happens among the audience, like what their reaction is to that and how they get engaged. So we don't really take the systemic view. I would argue that you know, longer term, we probably need something like an ecology for the information environment, but that's, you know, years, years ahead. So if we were to try to tackle this now, I think the main steps that would have to happen is one, we should probably look at getting transparency reporting to get a better understanding of what data is available. One problem is that it's a chicken and egg game. Researchers go into social media companies and ask for more data, and the social media companies will respond with, well, what data do you want? And so the onus is on the researcher to really have a deep understanding for what data could possibly be aggregated and tracked by platforms, which you're not likely to have unless you've worked inside. So there's a gap there that is is kind of insurmountable. So transparency reporting with research in mind would help unblock that challenge. Then the second thing is we really need some rules around data sharing. In particular, how do we facilitate data sharing from industry that also still protects the end user, right? Because there are so many privacy concerns that are wrapped up in this. And then with that articulated, which probably has to be done in the form of regulation, the next step after that is we do need longer term collaborative research that engages industry, the external research community, as well as policymakers, such that we have a feedback loop to design research to better understand, first of all, how the information environment works. Secondly, what are the impacts, the effects of influence operations are, and also the efficacy of different types of countermeasures, particularly those that are that are done by platforms. All right. So I want to take each of those three in order and explore them a little bit. So you've described a with respect to uh, transparency reporting, you've described a bit of a chicken and egg problem. You want transparency reporting that's mandated with research in mind, 
but the researcher doesn't know without seeing the data what data he or she wants uh, or would actually find useful. And the companies, of course, have no particular incentive to tell them and might not themselves even know this is the data that you should be most interested in. So how do you determine what the contours of transparency reporting should look like, given that you need the data in order to make that assessment in the first instance? So I do have some ideas on how it can be reverse engineered. If you were to look at, which we've already aggregated, the the body of policies that have been enacted by platforms, as well as their interventions, this will give us some sort of a sense of what data would possibly be there based on that piece of information, right? So for example, a company that has a dedicated intervention to get rid of fake accounts, for example, or identify them a mass or get rid of those that are misrepresenting somebody else. Presumably, that intervention itself would generate data. And so there's one piece of data that could be found. The other way you can reverse engineer this is to look at some of their ad tools. So go in as if you are an advertiser, see how they're actually targeting, and then work backwards to put forward a bit of a framework for what we would assume should be available based on the things they've already disclosed, so to speak. And I I think that would actually allow legislators to get to a point where they can have some broad buckets without actually having to cough up that data and um, risk anybody's privacy related to it, such that we could get to a point with a deeper understanding of which companies are actually tracking what. But I'm confused about that because, so, you know, if you do that with Facebook, you're going to get one set of potential disclosable metrics. Uh, or disclosable data for transparent. And then if you look at YouTube, you're going to get a different one. And if you look at Twitter, you're going to get still a different one. How do you create out of that a set of laws that say, hey, all social media companies that need that meet the following criteria, presumably they have to report the same types of data. How are you going to reverse engineer common threads of data out of platforms that are, you know, quite particular in in terms of what sort of material they report and collect. Well, so this has kind of been one of the major problems is that we've left it all up to the platforms to define. And so they come out each with their own terms and which makes sense for them in terms of their own operating. And then we've used that, I think, over time to try to build up a sense of things. And and this is clearly insufficient when you start to want to get them to share data. So I guess what I would say is that you can always move it up a level of generalization that would make it easier. So you could look at all of the account level enforcements and bucket those types of data under one thing. I think we should be very clear in expecting that (laughs) The data is not going to be uniform. It isn't even going to be uniform and structured the same way between products in a single social media platform. And this is a problem. The data is not as structured and consistent as many might assume, even within one company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, so in other words... Getting to a place where you're talking about reasonable transparency reporting is a mammoth undertaking. Yes, I would think so. All right. Second category, uh, you want to require certain data sharing. Presumably, that's a second step once you have certain common data reporting, uh, transparency reporting categories. Who do you want data shared with? for research purposes? In other words, in your kind of ideal construction here, who is a social media platform required to share what sort of data with? So just to be clear too, not all data that they would, that social media companies would aggregate would be fit for sharing. I mean, there, there are definitely going to be instances in which sharing of that data could potentially put other users at risk who really shouldn't be because, you know, they were either swept up in a, an influence operation or whatnot, or they were just the targeted audience. So the transparency reporting helps shed some light on possible options for data sharing, but definitely not necessarily leading to all of it. In terms of who should actually have access to that, I, I think there needs to be a very strong vetting process. Um, and this is one of the ways in which something like a CERN for the information age could act as a vehicle for handling that type of vetting to make sure that the researchers who do want to have access to this are responsible. They're not going to use this information for untoward purposes, that they're capable of actually you know, handling that data safely, as well as undertaking that research. So I think as a third and final step, what's really important is we need a longer term mechanism to facilitate that type of research collaboration, um, mainly because beyond the fact that data sharing is so difficult, is the issue that research interests aren't often aligned between industry and academics or even other policymakers. And so this is a this is a really big gap as well. It seems like there's just unending gaps in this space. But um, so being able to to make sure that academics can work with industry with number one, not you know being tainted for having done so, because this is also becoming increasingly a problem. If the only way you can do this level of research is to go inside a company, immediately your credibility is already compromised, and your research is not likely to to receive the same attention in the way it might have if it was done purely by yourself in academia. So being able to protect academics to be able to get that access is really key. Another issue is that because this is an emerging space, you know, researchers don't necessarily see a career trajectory if they're academics in undertaking some of the longer term research around effects and, and efficacy of interventions. So helping facilitate, you know, something that, you know, helps their career would be really key. 
I think it has to be a combination too in terms of types of researchers. It's not just academics who have something to offer here. I think there's a lot of researchers in civil society who can shed light, especially regionally, on the nuances of influence operations and the measures done to counteract them. So I think it should be a, a bit of a broad set of researchers, but there definitely needs to be a very strong vetting process. All right. So I think the contours of what you're suggesting now are starting to take shape, which is to say some structuring mechanism for collaborations, research collaborations in which scholars, civil society folks get access to data without, you know, without signing NDAs that compromise them or or whatever based on some kind of common metrics that emerge from transparency reporting disclosures. Yes. So I'm I'm trying to imagine what that structure looks like. You're talking about I think realistically would require legislation in a number of countries. How do you imagine this sort of thing taking shape? Is it something that, you know, the Congress of the United States or the Canadian Parliament or the British Parliament would take the lead on? Is it something that the companies would preemptively commit to and sort of agree on a set of transparency metrics? I mean, what's the mechanism by which you imagine something like this happening? I wish it were a magic wand, but barring that. So in order for this to happen, yeah, there does have to be buy-in from from the companies. If if it doesn't work for how they function, then it's likely to be very difficult to get it set up. Um, so consulting them to better understand, you know, what their operating challenges are is really necessary. In terms of governments, you do have a number of different governments around the world that are already moving to put legislation in, and some of them have mentioned data sharing and transparency reporting. So one that comes to mind is the European Union's uh, Digital Services Act, and they have an article in there. They have two things. They've got the transparency reporting, and they've also got a section that speaks to the need for sharing data with researchers, but doesn't go far enough in terms of articulating what the rules around that would be. Um, And likewise, the transparency reporting isn't necessarily currently structured to inform or shed light on what data might be available to help researchers. Now, one thing is, with so many different countries and bodies coming up with regulation, it would be beneficial to all of them, perhaps, to work together. Yes, each country has different laws that they're dealing with that are already in place, which will change the color of their own legislation. However, there is a big cost sharing mechanism, like a big cost sharing benefit that could be could be gained by all of those countries by actually kind of working together. Now, there are some initiatives that I think are going to help that a little bit. In Canada, we have a, a think tank called CG. And under Chris Beale, they're running the Global Platform Governance Network, which is effectively bringing together the different bureaucrats from around the world who are working on legislation. So there's a potential place to help inform and and drive that discussion. Obviously, our own project aims to bring multi-stakeholders together to work through some of those problems. And over the next couple of years, this is going to be an increasing focus of ours. How do we actually work through getting to a point where we can have transparency reporting and data sharing and that sort of thing? When it comes to the bigger issue of the Institute, 
We have looked at a few different models. Obviously, the U.S. has uh, FFRDCs, which were created to facilitate research between academics and the defense industry, particularly coming out of the Second World War. Um, And that's been rather successful in facilitating that kind of research collaboration. There's a model there that could be used. I think increasingly, given the nature of influence operations, that it's global, that some countries have better privacy laws than others, and the cost sharing issue, that it would be much better if, say, you know, Five Eyes countries in the European Union came together to create a CERN that dealt with their particular piece of the information environment. Um, That being said, I think it's very important to engage other parts of the world, because not every policy, not every regulation is one size fits all. And this seems to be quite lacking. So yes, this is an almost insurmountable challenge. It is huge, but this is also probably one of the most pressing topics of our time if the pandemic has taught us anything. One thing you mentioned is that the companies need to be bought in realistically in order for this kind of thing to be plausible. The companies have a certain amount of Uh, transparency reporting that they are either required to do for certain purposes, for example, uh, law enforcement compliance reporting for information demands, or that they just do for their own reasons, uh, some of them more informationally rich than others. How bought into the, the more expansive concept that you're describing do you think the major companies are realistically And to what extent are they in the same place on it? I mean, it's hard to say. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the companies. It's very easy to paint them all as being, you know, quite evil and and about a bottom line. But they they are organizations comprised of humans. And there are many people inside those companies who do really want to do good things. And, and are dedicated to tackling problems like influence operations. And I think in those areas of the company, you'll find support for wanting to increase data sharing, for wanting to do more. At the same time, because of the lack of trust for industry, having them drive an initiative like this isn't likely to lead to the best outcome either. Uh, mostly because I think people won't believe it. And and that's fair given given everything that's transpired over the last five or six years. Also, though, I think that the companies, no matter how much money they, they appear to be making, no single company can probably bankroll such a center indefinitely or to the degree that is really required for us to make rapid advancement in terms of our knowledge on this topic. And this is where I think governments are really needed to come in to help. And there's there's a few reasons. One, I think they need to set the rules. But they can't set the rules if they don't understand how the companies work, because you're going to come up with rules that don't actually work in practice. So that's why that engagement is so key, not just to get them bought in, but be able to create rules that will actually function in practice is key. But then beyond them, I think the philanthropic community has been a leader in trying to advance research in this space. There were philanthropic uh, organizations that were heavily behind Social Science One. And having their, I think their leadership is really, really going to be necessary as well. So it's kind of a triumvirate of that. 
and then you know consultations with with academics and civil society to to help inform what they perceive the challenges to have been. So we're, I really see over the next year, at least in terms of our work at the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations, is to undertake a lot of those consultations um, between industry, government, civil society to try to get a handle on what is feasible, what's possible, and what will actually satisfy everyone. So tell us a little bit about your project and uh, the partnership and what it is, how it came together, and what it is that you're trying to do. Sure. Just by a bit of background information on, on me, I've been researching how propaganda has been changing since about 2014. Um, and my interest had stemmed from childhood. I was always very fascinated as to how leaders could you know, bring people to a point where they would do really awful things or lay down their life for their country. And so that was always fascinating. And I was able to turn back and do some more of that research in the 2010s. And I ended up working across many different sectors. I'm currently finishing my PhD at King's College London on this topic. I've worked with militaries. I've advised governments. I've advised tech companies. And throughout all of that, one of the things that's been really striking for me moving from community to community is how little understanding there is between stakeholders. You know, somebody who does academic research might be really rooted in the academic literature related to their field, and that's amazing, but they don't necessarily understand the inner workings of the company, and then that shows in their research, and it also shows in the proposals that they make. They aren't necessarily overly practical for companies, or they don't have policy implications. Likewise, we see regulations that come out that, you know, you're left wondering whether they even bothered talking to anybody who ever worked in a company. And likewise, companies can get a little Kool-Aid drinking going on that they may not see much beyond, you know, their own vantage point sometimes. And that can be problematic. So we really have a gap in terms of bringing all of that together. And one of the reasons why the partnership came into being was to try to start to start to fill some of those gaps, bridge those divides. Um, it is hard because obviously we're talking a, a systemic problem, which means there are many, many stakeholders involved in this. So we've chosen in our first year of operations, and we launched publicly in January of 2020, to focus more on um, bridging the divide between industry and, and researchers, so the academic community mostly. And we've been exploring you know, models for collaboration. Um, that's how we looked at adapting the FFRDC model and ultimately came to the conclusion that it needs to be something bigger. And as we go forward, we're looking more now to also then engage government. And that's where we start to focus more on fostering evidence-based policy development. And if we want to do that, <laughs> we're going to need a few things. At first, we probably need some standards for how investigative research is currently done so that we can start to mitigate you know, problems around attribution in many of the case studies, uh, mistaking correlation for causation, and really bringing that standard up to a new level. So in that regard, we launched an Influence Operations Researchers Guild, um, which we're currently building out. And we also had gone back and done quite a number of literature reviews. But so if we want to get to evidence-based policymaking, then we need the transparency reporting, we need the data uh, sharing rules, and we need increased research collaboration. So we're committed to unsticking that by exploring you know, what the challenges are, what models could be done, um, and then working with different stakeholders to be able to achieve that. So I hope we'll have some exciting things in the next year and a half in that regard. When you look around and say this conversation is, is quite stunted in some ways, and we're still in the case study phase of 
describing human disease, right? Wow, look, there are welts all over this person. What are the entities that are actually leaning forward? And, uh, you know, are there social media companies that are more forward-leaning than others in this regard? Are there governments that have been more inquisitive as to and a little bit less reactive? Like, who are the people who are actually doing this really well? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I, I don't want to come down hard on on the many people who are working in this space because this is a difficult topic, and uh, and it's made more difficult by you know, the the systemic nature of it. So making sense of it is 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 a challenge. And we lack something like an information theory that can actually explain what's going on. I mean, the existing theories we have were really just based on transmitting a single message. It had nothing to do with, you know, people engaging with each other through mediated technology. So to that end, I think the places that I find the most interesting and helpful are the organizations that manage to meaningfully bring different stakeholders together. So I've been very impressed with what CG is doing with the global platform governance network. I, I have high hopes for where that heads. The empirical study of conflicts project at Princeton has been doing great work, especially trying to make sense in the bigger picture of things, right? So they they compare, you know, many case studies over time to understand whether there's trends happening there. Um, they also undertake different studies to test like the effects of influence operations and the efficacy. So, you know, they're they're pushing the envelope there. At Bath, Crest is really good. I would look towards the CVE space, the countering violent extremism space, which is very, very similar to influence operations, if not the same thing. It's been going on for a lot longer. Um, so there is more research there to be had. Um, and they've had similar challenges. I think one thing that would be really, really useful Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details is for us to stop kind of parceling out threats as if there's some sort of siloed thing and there's no connection between them. There's a lot that can be learned from looking at different security areas and types of threats over time. And that's also not necessarily happening. And what I mean there is like looking at violent extremism, looking at cybersecurity, as well as, as, well as influence operations and more specifically disinformation. Countries, a lot of people put up you know, Finland and Estonia is really shining examples. And, and yes, they have done well. The thing that I would caution there is that they're very small countries population wise. They also are very, well, at least in the case of Finland, more homogenous. And both of them are countries where the language that they speak is not necessarily that easy to learn. So it's very easy to detect any foreigner who may be trying to engage. Now, it's a little bit harder in Estonia, where you have a big Russian-speaking population, and you can get in through that door. But that makes it a lot easier to do something about the problem. Also, having what might be perceived as an existential threat on, in your backyard, I think, galvanizes society a little bit better than, say, in the U.S. In terms of countries that are more similar to the U.S., 
everybody seems to be pretty much on the same footing. It's a lot of reaction. I think most countries struggle to engage industry in a meaningful way, so they're not necessarily able to dig deeper into understanding how they work. And this leaves us in this kind of a quagmire. We're going to leave it there. Alicia Wanless, thanks so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so share us on all the socials, rate or review us wherever you found us, buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com, and send a link to this episode to a friend. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>